0: Hey, I'm Gina from Madison, Wisconsin. I'm Jennifer from Bethel Park, PA.
1: Hey,
2: I'm Alex from Rochester, New York. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. Thank you.
1: I'm Jesse Thorne. James Brown wasn't just the godfather of soul, and he wasn't just the minister of the new new, super heavy funk. He was also the hardest working man in show business and a man with a few surprising friends.
2: I think why he connected with Nixon and and, and at times with the Republican Party, most of all, is because he, he was an individualist. He, he tied in with that bootstrap mentality of doing for yourself. You can't trust anybody else. And I can succeed on my own was his philosophy. It's bullseye.
1: This week, biographer R.J. Smith profiles Mr. Dynamite, the amazing Mr. Please Please himself, from a country wild boy with burlap underwear to soul brother number one. And then comedian Cameron Esposito reveals her rugged childhood wardrobe.
0: How many days a week should a suburban girl wear a coonskin cap? (laughs) I went with seven, seven days a week.
1: And I'll tell you why you should go where everyone knows your name. All that and more this week on Bullseye. Let's go. At the top of every program, Bullseye offers up some of the best things happening in pop culture right now. Today we're checking in with our rock music correspondents Daniel Ralston and Maggie Sirota from the Low Times podcast. Hey Daniel, hey Maggie, how you guys doing?
0: Great, how are you? Hey Jesse.
1: Fantastic, I couldn't be better. Um, Maggie, I want to start with you and your recommendation Uh, This is a song called Life by the band Summer Camp Um, I am excited by any band called Summer Camp That pretty much gets me right off the bat Tell me a little bit about these guys
0: They're a guy-girl duo from the UK They don't have much in the way of a catalog They've got an EP coming out this summer That um, was written entirely on a piano And it just seems perfectly poised to be a great summer song like if I had a really if my barbecue was kind of winding down and I wanted to inject a little life into it I'd probably put this on
1: Well, speaking of life and fun records, let's take a listen to your pick. This is a song called "Henrietta" by the band Yessayer.
3: Is a band that on the surface always sort of did not appeal to me because I, I, t- can, I can tend to write bands off when I hear the words Brooklyn, Dancy, and things like that, <laughs> but the first song of theirs I heard was a song uh, on the Dark Was the Night compilation called Tightrope, and I was just so surprised by the depth of the song itself, and I think this new song, Henrietta, has a little bit of that same thing, where it's a really fun song. Again, like Maggie said, it might be something you wanted to put on in your summer barbecue, maybe on a rooftop in brooklyn but uh there's something else about it that sort of grabs you and uh and hangs on to you for sure
1: daniel ralston recommends the song henrietta by yay sayer uh maggie sirota recommends summer camp's song life uh you can find them on the low times podcast uh in itunes or on the web maggie daniel thanks for joining us on bullseye
2: thank you so much oh
3: thanks jessica
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Ford. He was known by many names. Mr. Dynamite, the amazing Mr. Please Please himself, Soul Brother No. 1, the hardest working man in show business, the minister of the new, new super heavy funk, and most of all, as the GFOS, the godfather of soul. James Brown went from a Georgia jailhouse to the top of the charts, and in his four decades of recording and performing dominance, he left a legacy that's unmatched in American popular music. My guest R.J. Smith is the author of the first major biography of Brown, which traces his life from a literal whorehouse to being the king of soul and creator of funk. The book is called The One, The Life and Music of James Brown. Welcome to the show, RJ. It's great to have you on the show. Hey, it's really great to be here. Any excuse to talk about the GFOS <laughs> is what glad. I have to say about that. Mm. I, I particularly enjoyed uh, the part of the book at the, uh, the concerts around the rumble in the jungle in Zaire. Where he wears that GFOS jumpsuit—that's
2: <laughs> a great era because yeah, he he had the jumpsuit and he has this kind of strapping cummerbund thing. Uh, <laughs> he he was getting a little little bit soft around the middle, uh, you know. He's middle aged there.
1: This is like seventy-six or something like yeah, that. Is yeah, that, right? Yeah, yeah. So the the cummerbund is like a
2: foot tall. I went to an estate. Uh, well, there was an estate auction and also a collection of stuff from the estate uh, in, a, in a museum in South Carolina. And they had a room. It was one of his wardrobe rooms, I assume, or all the stuff in it. And they had, you know, a dozen of those cummerbunds in different colors, all GFOS. I I saw in that room uh, a a knee pad, you know, an ace bandage on his knee that I assume he used every night when he hit the floor and did please, please, please. I had to really hold myself back from not putting that stuff on
1: (laughs) Well, I couldn't be a bigger fan of James Brown. I'm I'm excited to get the chance to talk about him. Um, let's start with his roots because you spend a lot of time in the book, not just talking about James Brown and his childhood, but talking about where he's from.
2: Well, for starters, well, he was born in the piney backwoods part of uh, central western South Carolina, really a rural, really 19th century sort of uh, area. And, um, you know, he when he died, he lived maybe an hour's drive from there. So I felt that to talk about him, I had to talk about that region. And everybody that comes from from that part of the state has this amazing uh, affiliation with it. It's one big reason why I think James Brown could be friends late in his life with Senator Strom Thurmond, uh, an arch conservative uh, segregationist not somebody you would think would be on the next square in the Hollywood squares with James Brown if he was
1: on Hollywood squares <laughs> it would probably read celebrity racists from
2: Thurmond. <laughs> yeah yeah but they they were southerners and they came from the same neighborhood basically not you know within a few a short drive and that matters. That really matters there, and they knew how to talk to each other. They had folks who knew folks, and that was it.
1: Tell me a little bit about the circumstances of James Brown's childhood.
2: Mm. He was, he was not a rich boy. He, he, no, uh, you know, his his dad worked in the. He took turpentine out of the pine trees uh, when they were living in South Carolina, and collected it in buckets and lived in a in in a, you know turpentine camps. So he wasn't around a lot when James was you know. Two, three, four. Uh, Mom was around somewhere. James always claimed he was abandoned by her. But actually, what I found out was that uh, she was around somewhat. I think James's dad was an incredibly violent person, as James would become. And um, I think he kind of scared her away. But James blamed her for leaving. Um, So parents weren't around a lot. He's living in a shack sometimes with aunts or cousins sometimes he was taking care of himself as a 4-year-old uh playing with what he called his friends that lived under the shack uh doodle bugs uh insects were his buddies then and uh yeah he he you know he would eat greens he found in the field uh whatever dad happened to bring home when he came home that night or that weekend uh it was uh, not an easy existence and it didn't get much better when he walked to Augusta Georgia as a as a 9-year-old with his dad uh, living in his in his aunt's whorehouse uh, taking care of himself and in some ways that's when he walked into the 20th century when he walked into Augusta in the 1940s so where did music enter his life ah Lewis Jordan performed there I love you this was like one of the uh, top tiers of the so-called chitlin circuit so Brown would go to those shows they had a talent night once a week and and his group uh, the Cremona Trio won uh, when he was a, uh, you know, uh, barely into his teens. Uh, they did, I think, a Lewis Jordan song, some gospel songs. They won a talent night, and uh, Brown was hearing music at the same time that he was performing it.
1: So, tell me about um, how a young James Brown ended up uh, ended up in jail or in in a sort of as you describe in the book jail was sort of a different thing yeah. back than what we might imagine but how did that how did that happen
2: well you know it's funny i was thinking about this today uh, that that whole jail time for him and he said something really interesting to a, a close friend a little later in his life that i always am going to wonder about he said the police wanted him for other stuff more serious stuff that he may or may not have done. There's always been this uh, rumor that Brown committed worse crimes than the breaking into cars that he ended up going to prison for. Uh, but the, so he said that the police were out to get him for something he may or may not have done. They caught him breaking into cars, stealing uh, soldiers and and working men's clothes. He needed something to wear. It was literally. And this was a guy who would go to to grade school wearing uh, uh, this burlap flower sack underwear. Well, I mean, he was, you know, living in a
1: living in a whorehouse and, you know, stealing clothes to wear is about as close to a wild boy as you could possibly be and still be living in a 20th century American city. Mm. Um, And just being somewhere where even if the food was gruel, you could expect food. That's right. It is a huge difference.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a, a – expectation is exactly right. He had – he knew he was going to get sleep that night. He knew that he was going to get fed the next morning. He had a radio. Uh, they called a Music Box in prison. He, he formed a gospel group in prison.
1: I don't get the impression that he was driven to form a gospel group because of his faith mm. as much as because that was the type of group that you formed if you wanted <laughs> to get singing gigs.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right. Uh, he he went to a lot of different churches as, as a boy, as a teenager, and, and as an adult. And he got, quote-unquote, got religion in a more formal, uh, affiliated way later on in his life but uh he went to a lot of different churches and he he often said or at least once said that he he studied these preachers he even as a kid was studying how artists or speakers or performers connected with audiences and he went there almost as uh more than a devout person i i think he went there as um as a student a student of communication and uh rhetoric and uh connecting and he he learned a lot that way
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the writer R.J. Smith. He's written a biography of the minister of the new, new, super heavy funk, James Brown. It covers his roots in Georgia and his path to becoming a pop culture icon. I think one of the most interesting things about what was happening in pop music at that time, especially black pop music, was that all of a sudden it it, it became possible to make Uh, secular, popular music for young people as a career. I mean, I think that's the great revolution of rock and roll is, you know, uh, fancy pop singers were singing to older people, grown-ups, people with money, and, you know, gospel singers were singing gospel music. Um, And, you know, just like with Sam Cooke or whoever else, you realize, oh, wait, you can actually pack a show full of teenagers. Yeah, yeah. And sell records to twenty-year-olds. <laughs> that's very different from from what uh, from what a you know Perry Como
2: can do. Yeah, well, that that that's a good point. I mean in the in the fifties when he was breaking through on the so-called Chitlin' Circuit, you know, those were working-class tough tough, grown-up African-American audiences. They told you when they liked something. They let you know with uh, with their words, with things they threw or didn't throw, uh, if they didn't like things. If you suddenly didn't do a song they expected, you know, their fists might fly It was a really grown-up scene that he was singing rhythm and blues to. And a few years later, after things like Live at the Apollo and the Tammy Show, when America can see him, he's doing those same songs to teenage audiences, white and black. And it's a whole different vibe, but he's the same performer.
1: What were the first records that he recorded?
2: Now, Please, 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 1956. There's always been a legend of of an earlier recording, but that's, that's certainly the first one. Please, please, please. Please, 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 please. And uh, that was a big hit for him. If he hadn't had a hit right off off the top, he might not have had a follow up or a career.
0: Oh yeah, oh, yeah. Love, I love you so,
2: baby. You did me wrong. It's kind of like a set piece or a found object or something. It was this structure that a lot of songs had and that triplet piano, triplet thing that kind of is the whole rhythm for the song and the vocal style. You know, it's the street corner vocal harmony style of a million and one records and it goes back to gospel quartets and stuff. that had never gone before. He performed it night after night in these clubs and worked up an amazing, you know, it could be a 20-minute routine and crawling around on his hands and knees. He'd get off the stage and crawl through the audiences. He'd find a pretty girl and he'd beg her, please, please, please come back, baby. He just pushed. He pushed and pushed and pushed with that song. He's he's this live animated object. and burning. He, he's burning.
1: After a break, more with RJ Smith on James Brown and what Mr. Dynamite took from his predecessors.
2: He always presented himself as quote unquote a man's man, but he got his hair from Little Richard. He got a great song from Billy Wright. He he took influence and notice of everybody.
1: It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International. Bullseye is supported by donations from listeners like you at MaximumFun.org/slash donate. And by Comedy Bang Bang, Friday nights at 10, 9 central on IFC. Comedy so nice, they banged it twice. This week, Scott Ackerman joined by guest Elizabeth Banks, plus smooth jazz legend Barry R. That's on Comedy Bang Bang, Friday nights at 10, 9 central on IFC.
3: Hey guys, Nick White here. I work on the show. So it's been about six months since we've transitioned The Sound of Young America into Bullseye. We are really excited about the new format. We're proud of it. We're bringing you all kinds of new content. But we really do want to know what you guys think about six months in. So we've put together a really, really quick survey. It won't take long at all to do, but it will really help us know what you guys are thinking about the new show. So go to MaximumFun.org slash survey and let us know. Please? Thanks.
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, R.J. Smith, is the author of a biography of James Brown, the musician and bandleader, the godfather of soul, who helped shape the face of modern popular music. I want to circle back to one of his influences that you write really extensively about in the book, and really fascinatingly, and that's Little Richard. Mm. Little Richard followed in Louis Jordan's footsteps as the king of screaming
2: in mm. popular music. Yeah. Little Richard, when he was not a star, came to this town, Toccoa, Georgia, which is where Brown had lived when he got out of prison, a small town up in the mountains, northern Georgia. Little Richard was playing there. Brown and, and the Flames asked if they could come on stage and play with him, and he knew better than to turn his stage over to anybody. But he did say, when I take a break, you guys can come on and play for a few minutes then. He liked what he heard. He gave them the number of his manager, Clint Brantley, in Macon, Georgia, big town, and in a, in a few months, they were all living in Macon, Georgia, with the same manager. He definitely was somebody that Brown was studying very closely. They went, you know, he, he, he got his hair very clearly from people like Little Richard and Little Richard, and this whole amazing tradition in the South uh, that uh, it's been called the Tent Show Queen tradition. Um, a singer named Billy Wright in Atlanta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talking about Tell me what the people... A gay man, he had his hair up that way before Little Richard did. And other figures, Escarita, an amazing piano player, taught Little Richard some things uh, and had a high, uh, gospel y whoop that uh, Little Richard inherited. Shake it like that. All these people are, are in, in the clubs and doing the same sort of things. And, and there's an influence there on, surprisingly, maybe, maybe not so surprisingly, on James Brown. You know, who, well, he's not a tent show queen. He he always presented himself as, quote, unquote, a man's man. But he got his hair from Little Richard. He got a great song from Billy Wright. He, he took influence and notice of everybody. There was a great turning point in
1: James Brown's career that – Um, you write about wonderfully in the book. And that is, he had been putting out this series of follow-up records to Please Please and had not, you know, he'd had minor hits but was not smashing with anything um, until he recorded an LP uh, that he had to really fight for, which was his first Live at the Apollo recording.
2: It is like being in church. Some, sometimes in that record, when he is going back and forth with a, a, a totally intimate relationship with the audience, people shouting out, he's hearing that and feeding off that energy, Shouting back at them, going back and forth, it—it's it, so much richer and more. It's something different than a record. It's being in a place that—that uh, that, uh, is not like a living room or a jukebox or somewhere. I want to hear you scream. I want to hear you say ow. I want to hear you say ow.
3: Don't just say
2: ow. Say ow.
3: And I believe my work will be
1: done.
2: You can hear his control over people. He, he lived this dangerous life and he had so little control as a kid. And I think being alive on the stage and and having this amazing magical power over people in the audience kept him Kept him alive in a way, and you can hear it on, in the, on the live at the Apollo record.
1: It's around this time that he is really starting to develop this sort of, in in 2012 terms, nutty business model mm. <laughs> in his relationship <laughs> with his record label and his touring, um, which which involved. I mean, it involved among other things just carrying around boxes full of
2: money. <laughs> Yeah,
1: (laughs) but also also involved a sort of it's funny because to say that it's a feudal relationship with his record label makes it sound like uh, the record label was controlling him. But he what's remarkable about it is that he has essentially through sheer force of will and intelligence and I guess you would say street smarts twisted around that. Into something where he is somehow in charge
2: yeah, that's right that's that's exactly right. He was a fighter, and Sid Nathan was a fighter, and why they worked so well together, I think, was because they they had this awful marriage where they shouted and all but came to fisticuffs so they never did but but they they shouted and they kind of respected each other and and stubbornness. Brown respected stubbornness, and he rose to the occasion and became more stubborn. Um, <laughs> y- you know, I mean, the relationship with Nathan was like he constantly – Brown wasn't getting paid a lot. The way that he made most of his money, it was from those shows, not the hits. He would take bo- shoeboxes and cardboard boxes of money and have different guys carry it. He had rolls of bills in the toes of his boots. And – um but he was he was always needing money. And so one thing that would happen was Nathan would say, well, I'll tell you what, I'll loan you $5,000, but you got to sign another contract for the next two years. So he was constantly on the hook for more time, uh, just because he was always uh, in, in need of more money from the guy. So in that way, uh, yeah, he looks like a supplicant. But he knew clearly he he was the hitmaker, especially as the '60s went on. This is also when he's starting
1: to develop what you might call his unique management style. <laughs> um, he had been he had been trod upon a little bit in at the very beginning of his music career, and within five or ten years in the business, he was very sure what he wanted in his
2: organization on all levels. Uh, with band members, with uh, managers and business associates, with girlfriends, he never wanted to be dependent on people. It's one reason among many that he had you know, two, four, five drummers in the band at one time. Drummers were important, but he didn't want to be beholden to just one drummer. That was giving somebody too much power. So he always doubled up on everything, uh, accountants and uh, uh, spiritual, you know, the Al Sharpton types. He always had a couple of uh, political advisors. Um, he always had a couple of drummers. He So, so that he freed his hands and he always kind of played people off against each other.
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, R.J. Smith, is the author of The One, a biography about soul brother number one, James Brown. So funk is this revolution that is often attributed to James Brown um, I, I, there's a lot of disagreement about what the first <laughs> funk record is and you write a little bit about that disagreement in the book um, I think there is uh, there's relatively broad agreement that the first funk hit the first smash hit record of funk is Papa's got a brand new bag <laughs> The world changed around James Brown as James Brown was changing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the world of the late 1950s when he entered the scene and the world of the mid 1960s when he, uh, around when he invented funk, were very, very different.
2: His initial relationship was as an observer in a way, uh, the segregated system especially in the South where he made so much of his money live, um, he didn't select it. It it was forced upon him. And artists like him learned how to make it work as well as it could work for them. They played either segregated shows or strictly to black audiences. Uh, And when suddenly uh, audiences were integrating and artists were expected to have a, a point of view on integration, it became complicated for somebody like James Brown who wanted that circuit of black businessmen and record stores and, and radio stations that catered only to that audience that he thrived on and used to advance his, his, his career and have hits with, suddenly it was dissolving uh, as integration was, was slowly happening. But as well, people are expecting pop stars like Brown to have uh, opinions. Brown came after the fact to that, And and yet he seized on it to become a bigger star and to actually say things to people that mattered and that helped uh, speak to the civil rights era.
1: Something that's interesting to me about James Brown in the social context of this period is that he seems like he is always driven by a desire to be the thing that he is and be successful at it. And in uh, that worked great in an era when um, he was operating in an exclusively African-American business and cultural environment. Um, it did not necessarily make sense in the context of a sort of I don't know what to say. I, I don't mean this pejoratively, but a sort of Sydney Poitier type environment where um, everyone is coming together, but as things continued to progress socially, he became that same quality about him made him this powerful symbol of what it was to be black.
2: Mm. If if I hear what you're saying the right way, yeah, I mean he he was a fighter. I mean he was a, obviously a boxer, and everything he got he had to fight for, and every time he got more it just confirmed in himself this idea that fighting was the right way to do things so he performed as a fighter which is why the rumble in the jungle where he is almost equal billing with muhammad ali is so uh, powerful and meaningful it, with these these two great global fighters uh who had a political dimension and a creative dimension and a fistic dimension all in one place
1: He didn't necessarily identify himself with the things that people were identifying him with, especially politically um, in the late 60s.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's the other part of uh, saying no, that could be a problem for James Brown. Um, he, I think like a lot of us, uh, he didn't have a straight and narrow uh politics it, it, he had warring ideas that didn't all line up neatly he was he believed in civil rights he clearly didn't believe in nonviolence uh, <laughs> you know he he, he didn't he, he? didn't agree with Dr. King's tactics, but he admired and, and I think loved Dr. King. Ultimately, um, you know, he was critical of the Black Panthers and didn't and didn't didn't truck with that. He he thought separatism was going to be a big problem, but but yeah. And then in the late '60s and in, in the 1972, uh, he sides very verbally and photographically with Richard Nixon, and it became a huge problem for him with his audience, uh, white and black. Um, it became and when people said, James, you're making a big mistake, this is a conservative or this is no friend of the black man or this is someone who 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 doesn't line up in people's minds with say out loud I'm black and I'm proud when Brown heard that he, he went out there and endorsed him again. <laughs> you know, because that's that was the fighter in him and the uh you tell me no and I'll say it twice. Uh, and it really came to blow up in his face.
1: And also James Brown was not afraid to, you know, have a meeting with Richard Nixon because he wanted something out of it oh, <laughs> when know, he was in tax, when he was in tax trouble for running an entire business based on uh, boxes full of money.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, he was hoping to get some things, I think, from the Nixon administration, uh, honorable and and business moves and stuff. But on the deepest level, I think why he connected with Nixon and, and and at times with the Republican party most of all is because he sided with that uh, thread in 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 conservative or Republican politics or southern politics or whatever we want to call it um, and they're all different things but with that strain that's that has a mistrust for social programs uh, that 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 he he was an individualist. He he tied in with that bootstrap mentality of doing for yourself. You can't trust anybody else. So yeah, if I I don't want a handout, just get out of my way and level the playing field, and I can do I can succeed on my own was his philosophy. And we can argue, and I don't think Nixon really did that, but he spoke that language. He 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 used those symbols uh, to attract people like James Brown very successfully.
1: It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio. International. Production of Bullseye is supported in part by Squarespace, a site for creating a blog or portfolio with over 100 templates and fonts using a drag-and-drop interface, offering 24-hour support and online workshops. More at squarespace.com slash bullseye. The Memory Palace is a remarkable podcast about history, To imagine it, start by wiping away whatever comes to mind when you hear a podcast about history. Replace it with small, beautiful, fascinating stories. Things you'd never imagine and never expect. A sense of awe and wonder. Something amazing. That's the Memory Palace, the newest podcast in the MaximumFun.org family. Find it free in iTunes or your favorite podcatcher or online at MaximumFun.org. That's The Memory Palace, the newest podcast in the Maximum Fun family. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, R.J. Smith, is the author of a biography of the hugely influential musician James Brown. The book explores Brown's multifaceted life from music to politics. It's called The One, The Life and Music of James Brown. By the mid-1970s, the dominant dance sound in the United States stopped being the kind of noisy funk sound and started being something that was much more refined, not a representation of a live performance, and eventually became disco. Yeah. And that was a really tough time for James Brown, who had never... I mean the train had had never decelerated before.
2: Yeah, that's right. And the sad thing, well there's a lot of sad things about that period from endorsing Nixon and its after effect on, you know, but one sad thing is that when he made James Brown records, when he made funk records, um they were really good records. or or pretty good records, Um, you know, but it was when he tried to make disco records and couldn't, or his heart wasn't into it, or he, he, you know... That's when he started to really sound less than we want James Brown to sound like.
1: What's that nickname that he had? The original disco godfather, the original disco man. Which <laughs> yeah. one
2: is it? The original disco man. Yeah. yeah, which is you know, I mean, and and it, it's it, true and it's sort of. That's it. That that that's his point was that you know this came from me and and a chunk of it really did you know. But disco was different. Disco was uh, much more steady on a 4-4. It was younger stars. It was more feminine and more gay than James Brown's audience uh, identified with. Um, there was a significant portion of
1: influence that was from people named Giorgio,
2: <laughs> not yes.
1: people named Jabbo.
2: Yeah. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Yeah he he did not know what to do i mean he 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 was you know he was the road runner going over the cliff uh, and running 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 was always the default setting right that's what you did you kept going you were the hardest working man in show business you always ran and you always worked it out and if you needed money now you kept running and the next show would get you some cash to get to the next town and so on and suddenly Running didn't work, so the audiences were smaller, and the bills were bigger than ever and the i r s was breathing down your back and uh yeah it 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 just it messed with his head
1: there's this point he he had signed a huge record contract with Polydor, the European record conglomerate yeah. and there's this point where he's not making hits the way he used to this is like nineteen seventy six or seventy seven or something like that, and he asks. Polydor for some money and they say no i mean he he was in the habit of just asking the record company hey send me twenty five thousand dollars
2: yeah in fact i think it was twenty thousand dollars for christmas <laughs> yeah he wanted he had to, he had to buy some christmas gifts or something was what he was saying and yeah he he would always hold not always but one strategy very successful and necessary was that he would hold the next record well, from Sid Nathan, Nathan until King paid him money up front to, to release a record. Well, he tried that with, 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 with Polydor, and they said no. And not only no, but you are contracted to give us a next record. And you're, the people that you owe money are all hitting us with your bills. So we really need that record before Christmas. And um, suddenly he was not running things the way he expected
1: when he tried to get out from uh having run off of the cliff, he did it by transforming himself into this sort of country guy, um not country music, but um you know he had been he had foregrounded his cosmopolitanness and his internationalness. but when it got really tough, what he did was drive a pickup truck and or a conversion van around his property in Georgia
2: yeah that was uh to have a home base to be a good old boy suddenly not in a a self-conscious or constructed way or only halfway constructed maybe there was a side of him that definitely was that way I mean that's that was where he came from and as I say that was why he could talk to Strom Thurmond who felt that way uh to some degree too
1: He had a career resurgence, um, as did a number of R&B musicians, around the release of The Blues Brothers. Yeah. And, you know, I was born in 1981. I don't remember when The Blues Brothers came out. I remember it as something that that I loved as an 11 or 12-year-old. It was a weird thing because it was the first glimmerings of baby boomer nostalgia at the same time as it was the first sort of hipster looking back on black music of white people um, coming into the mainstream.
2: Yeah. I think that he thought, thank God, these smart Hollywood or Saturday Night Live guys got it. (laughs) They got it right. I should be in movies. (laughs) I, I should be singing in movies. And he kept running and he kept going. And he could be playing shows uh at the lone star cafe in new york uh you know for 100 people or he could be playing shows in in italy for tens of thousands of people at a festival the same year the same month and uh it was another show it was he never dialed it down he needed that <laughs> vibe that he got from the audience he made that
1: horrible record with Africa bambata
2: oh <laughs> peace yeah
1: unity love and having fun <laughs> is the chorus of the song
2: <laughs> and I'm sure he didn't know who bambata was at all um, <laughs> and there's no reason that he should have at that, at that point maybe but um but he knew he was important and that, that he was a spokesperson for something and a and a, and a and a and a and a guy making uh very important records and it he probably signified a little bit like Akroyd and Belushi. Here's an important guy who gets me and is smart enough to want me to be in on what they're doing. So, so, but there, you, you read these stories from the time where they'd have press conferences with, with Brown and, and, and Bambata. And, um, it's, it's painful because you, <laughs> see, you know, Brown is competing with Africa Bambata and, you know, he's trying to, take him to school in front of an audience and educate him and put him in his place maybe or something. And Ben Bata is, is not about that at all. He's, he's, he loves James Brown. He's He wants to make a... He made a record and that's cool. And it, it just felt really awkward. So,
1: I'm not going to ask you to compare James Brown to uh, like Stephen Foster or people from before the dawn of recorded music. <laughs> um, but has there been any other popular music performer in the United States that has had the impact that James Brown had over his career?
2: You know, I I don't think we can talk about Elvis. Maybe we can talk about... In a way, we can talk about Sinatra, I think, because the way that I see it, you know, Sinatra... The way they come together for me is that he retooled himself so successfully from the 40s into the 70s. He found... Ways to make records that sounded good in that time and that as his voice and his skill set changed, he made records that were perfect for what was happening with him and the industry. And they don't sound like the records he made 10 years before in any period. Brown very much is like that. And the only other guy I can think of in a way is is Bob Dylan um, with very different results. I mean, we love – and uh, praise Bob Dylan for being chameleonic, for changing with the times, and you know, oh, he's born again now. Oh, now he's a fundamentalist, and oh, now he's uh, he's you know, he's political, and now he's a conservative, and and that somehow speaks to his protean nature. Well, James Brown was equally uh, contradictory and conflicting, and uh, not in a straight line. But I don't think it always worked for Brown uh, culturally uh, the way that it worked for Dylan. Um, other than that, you know, George because Clinton. Because of race. Exactly. I think that's it. Because of race. Because uh,
1: because what white people want from black people is authenticity.
2: That's it. Thank yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's not uh, ambiguity.
1: <laughs> well, R.J., I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. It was really fun to read the book and to talk to you.
2: Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: R.J. Smith's new book is called The One, The Life and Music of James Brown. Bullseye, I'm Jesse Thorne. Moving across country is rarely smooth sailing, but so far comedian Cameron Esposito has been taking it all in stride. Esposito was featured on this show just a couple of years ago when we were in Chicago, and lately she and her signature haircut, the Side Mullet, have been popping up all over the country, from TBS's Just for Laughs festival to South by Southwest and the Aspen Rooftop Comedy Festival. She's just moved from the Midwest to Los Angeles and she wasted no time getting to work. On her first day in California, literally her first day in California, she trekked up to the San Bernardino Mountains to join me and two hundred of the luckiest people on earth, if I do say so myself, at the fourth annual Max Funcon.
0: I am happy to be here in California. It it really did affect me when uh, all the Prop Eight proceedings were happening here. My biggest issue. Oh, should I? I'm like a giant lesbian. <laughs> did I? There's like one or two people that are like, really? And everyone else is like, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Look at those boots. Prop <laughs> <laughs> So that was a crazy moment. Um, as a woman who dates women, that was a crazy moment because one of the arguments of the people who wanted propate to stay on the books, one of their uh, arguments was that they didn't want little kids in schools to have to learn about the existence of same-sex couples. That was the wording. That's not my wording. That was the existence. So it wasn't a morality judgment. It was, like, here's the thing. I grew up in the suburbs, and I wish to God, all right, how many days a week should a suburban girl wear a coonskin cap? I went with seven, seven days a week. I just wish somebody had been like, listen, David Crockett, there's a reason for all this. (laughs) I wish that somebody had That implies that there are no little gay kids. Like, that's what that implies. For kids to not learn about the existence of... Because... All right, so, I, so I've so i always, like, this is how, I've always been built like that. I love my body, but it's athletic. Like, I came out just, like, tiny jackets over tiny jackets, like a Russian doll of tiny jean jackets, just skinny pants on. I'm ready for rugby. Throw a girl off my shoulder. I'll run the ball in. I've always been built like this. I've always been this person. I also, like, there's this, there's this picture of me from a Halloween. I'm probably eight. All my friends are there. My birthday is around Halloween, so it's like a birthday party. And my friends are dressed as, like, a gem or a cat or a nurse, like a jemmy cat nurse. I am a bloody pirate. And I have grease painted on a beard, and I am sawing a pinata of a swing set. And all these cat nurses are like, what the f- is going on? Except for the one who's like, no, I'm into it. Because <laughs> it's one in ten. <laughs> Statistically, she was there. <laughs> I also had to wear an eye patch for eight years of my childhood because when I was a kid, I had crossed eyes. Yeah. Yeah. When I say that, right after the pirate story, there's going to be some people who are like, oh, like a black, like a pirate patch? Like a jaunty, like a thing around the head, like a conquistador, like a sailor of the seas? That's not that kind of eye patch I'm talking about. This seems like an intentional eye patch. I'm talking about a, it was a Band-Aid material, disposable, flesh-colored eye patch. So when you put it on your face, it just looked like more skin. (laughs) like a sloth from the Goonies type of a situation. (laughs) To soften the blow, the people, the company that made these eye patches, they put in the box, they put these stickers because I think that they thought kids were going to be like, oh, what do you have on your binder? what do you have on your trapper key? Oh, like a Lisa Frank. Was that like a Lisa Frank rainbow? Well, check this eye patch sticker out. (laughs) I think that's what they imagined but never caught on. I think partially because it's really it's genuinely tough to rock an eye patch. And I think also because they didn't even make the right kind of stickers. Like they made these circular bucolic farm scenes. It would be like it would be like a deer drinking from a brook and then an owl next to the deer. They were printed in only navy blue, tan, and brown. So you were supposed to with your glasses, braces, bowl-cut coonskin cap. Throw a little deer on your patch and go and succeed at fourth grade. (laughs) (laughs) I just wish that somebody had said to me, Listen, kid, your eyes are totally going to straighten out, but you are not.
1: Cameron Esposito is a stand-up comedian newly based in Los Angeles. She's appeared at comedy festivals and clubs around the country. You can find out more about her at therealcameronesposito.com. At the end of every show, we feature a culture pick from yours truly. It's The Outshot. It seems kind of ridiculous to recommend Cheers. I mean, everyone's seen Cheers, right? It's one of the most beloved TV shows ever. But I'm going to do it. I'm going to say it. You should watch Cheers. Here's the thing Cheers is mostly just a perfectly standard sitcom. An Airsat's family, in this case a bunch of folks who hang out at a bar, relate to each other. Something goes wrong to upset the order of things. Something is done to set them right. Repeat. That's been the structure of sitcoms since I Love Lucy and the Honeymooners. The trick of the form, though, isn't the formula. It's the execution. You have to want to spend time with these people, quirks and all. The jokes have to be funny, and they have to fit perfectly into the characters' mouths. Most of all, you have to, as, as the viewer, care about this family. You have to want to be part of it. After work, when you're tired and your boss yelled at you and your spouse is annoyed at your smelly socks, your sitcom family has to be your refuge.
2: Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got
1: And that's actually what Cheers is about. Cheers is about having a home, having a family, having a place to go, no matter how tough your circumstances are. A disgraced baseball pitcher, a simple-minded kid from the boondocks, an insufferable male man who lives with his mom, a tired woman running from grinding poverty, a failed scholar, a psychiatrist who can't quite live with himself. All of these people go to Cheers, not to drink or to work, but to be home. And no matter what mistakes they make or have made, they're welcomed. And the great part is, on cheers, so are we. You
2: want to go where everybody knows your name.
1: That's my outshot. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer Julia Smith, our editor, Nick White, our intern, Lindsay Pavlis. Our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Our thanks to The Go Team and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use that. You should like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Thorne. All of those words in one long string to get special updates. You can also find us on Twitter at bullseye and you can find me on Twitter at Thorne. I guess that's about it. Just remember... All great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation.
3: PRI, Public Radio International.
1: Hey, listen, before we go this week, we have a new MaximumFund.org podcast called The Memory Palace. This show is so wonderful, so amazing. I've been trying to convince its creator, Nate Mayo to join Maximum Fun for months and months and months now, ever since I first heard the show, and burned through their entire archive in like a week. Um, but I thought that the best way to give you a feeling for what kind of show it is would be to run an episode of the show uh, after our show, so you can actually give it a listen. It's really short. Um, you don't have to worry that you're going to be stuck with it for a really long time. Uh, but it's beautiful and moving and... Wonderful. So, anyway, without any further ado, here's a sample episode of the new podcast, The Memory Palace, called The Sister's Fox.
3: People said the house was haunted, and that was even before the two girls started talking to the dead. Kate Fox was 11. Her older sister, Margaret, was just about marrying age. She was 14, when they moved into the little house in the Nothing Village, 40 miles east of Rochester, New York. The girls had moved around a lot in their short lives, particularly in the last several years since their mom left their dad when dad's drinking got to be too much. But now they're all together again. Their father seemed to be on the wagon for good this time and he had found enough work shoeing horses to afford the rent in the little house in Hydesville. And he probably got a pretty good deal, what with the ghost and all. Their neighbors would talk about the traveling salesman who had been invited inside years before and was never heard from again. Never heard from, that is, until one night in March of 1848, when Mr. and Mrs. Fox first heard the strange sounds coming from somewhere behind the living room wall. Some nights it would sound like knocking, other nights like furniture moving, and it always seemed to be coming from the bedroom their daughters shared. Their parents would run in, hoping to catch them mid-prank, but when they opened the door, the girls would be fast asleep, and they didn't believe that their daughters could be tricking them. These were just girls. But they were tricking them. What started with a little tap-tapping on the walls and tiptoeing back into bed, a hand over a mouth, a face in a pillow suppressing giggles, got more and more sophisticated as the nights went on. The sisters found that if they tied twine around an apple and tossed it across the room and quickly reeled it back in, the apple would skitter and skip along the floor and ricochet against the walls and furniture and sound an awful lot like the restless wandering of a murdered door-to-door salesman. And on the night of March 31st, the Fox sisters revealed the latest in their growing repertoire of ghost simulation techniques. They called their mother into the room and told her that Kate had made contact with the spirit. She then snapped her fingers once, and they heard a tap in response. She snapped twice, and it tapped twice. The next night, the foxes and all of their neighbors squeezed into the girls' candlelit room and waited for the spirit. At dawn, the audience slipped out of the house, convinced that they had just spent the night in the presence of a dead man and two girls with incredible powers. Mr. and Mrs. Fox were scared. Their daughters could not stay in that room anymore, so they sent them to live with their older sister Leah and her family. Leah was responsible. She'd look after them but they found that the ghost followed the girls, and Leah found an opportunity. Before long, thanks to Leah's management, the Fox sisters were selling out a 400-seat theater in Rochester. By 1850, the then 13-year-old Kate and the 16-year-old Margaret were the toast of New York City. People would wait in line for hours to buy tickets to see them, so they could ask the sisters to ask the spirit for word of their dead loved ones on the other side. The rich and famous would come backstage to meet the girls. The newspaperman Horace Greeley took them under his wing and introduced them to private clients who would pay the sisters to introduce them to the departed. Greeley also introduced them to New York nightlife, to the wine and whiskey that had nearly drowned their alcoholic father and destroyed their family. And in the pages of his newspaper, Greeley introduced the Fox sisters to the world. There were other mediums, There had been many other people who claimed to speak to the dead. But there was something about these sisters that people believed. They were innocent, pretty girls. And they were very, very good at what they were doing. They kept submitting to the challenges of skeptics and kept passing every test. Even people who were utterly convinced that this was all a trick couldn't explain how they did it. And everyone else, they wanted to believe. This was the 1850s. People just died all the time from diseases and minor flus and infections things that don't kill us now their family members their friends their kids would die in childbirth in accidents at work and at home why wouldn't they want to believe that those they loved weren't gone that those they lost could be found soon people were holding seances like we hold dinner parties they were putting their faith in tarot readers and mystics some were just scam artists others were just wrong they were just seeing things that weren't there. But all of them together were changing America, and the way its people thought about death and life. And this modern spiritualism, that was Greeley's phrase, stayed near the center of American life for decades to come, even as it left the sisters who started it all behind. On October 21, 1888, a 54-year-old Margaret Fox sat on the stage of the New York Academy of Music in front of 2,000 paying customers. And she spoke to the dead. And then she showed the audience how she spoke to the dead. She had recently lost her appetite for the whole business. And she wanted to get back at her older sister, Leah, whom she believed had been taking too big of a cut for years. So she told the people in the theater about how, 40 years earlier, back in that little house in that nothing town, after a few nights of knocking and tiptoeing and tying strings to apples... She and her little sister realized that they could both crack their toes. They could just tense their feet, and there would be this sound. And they found that no one could tell that they were doing it. And so people actually believed they were talking to the dead. And that was fun. She told them how they were happy to find out that that weird little sound could carry all the way to the back of a big theater. She told them how later, when they were famous, and fancy people would come to their fancy apartment on 42nd Street, A customer could be sitting all the way across the room from Margaret or Kate, and one of them would crack her toe, and the customer would be sure she was just tapped on the shoulder. Because sounds are hard to place in space, and because you'll pretty much believe anything if you really want to believe it. She revealed all of that, but not everything. There were some things that were private, some things that maybe she didn't even understand herself. So she didn't tell them about how both she and her little sister started to unravel. Not long after Horace Greeley introduced them to the world, and to worldly things like power and wealth and wine, things that had brought down people far better prepared for them than two kids from way upstate. She didn't tell them about how she and her sister struggled under the growing weight of their shared secret. She didn't talk about the times that Kate went further and further with her claims, moving beyond toe-crack conversations, to moving furniture, to making ghostly hands appear out of thin air, at least in the minds of desperate believers, or how she couldn't be sure how much her increasingly erratic sister believed her own nonsense. And that night in the theater, at the age of 54, she certainly didn't tell them about the time she tested her own belief. In 1852, the fame and money and parties brought a man named Elijah Kent Kane to one of her seances. She was 18, he was 32, and handsome, and a celebrated Arctic explorer. So she fell in love with him. And he loved her, but he didn't love her profession. He was Catholic, and his family was very Catholic. And there was no way they were going to approve a union between their God-fearing son and this godless woman who was spreading blasphemy. So she gave it up, and she and Cain began an affair. And they were happy for a few years and she was sure a marriage proposal would come any day until the scurvy cane had been fighting for years finally killed him in 1857. Margaret didn't tell the audience how she broke down one night, despondent and alone, and tried to contact her dead love, how she tried to do for real what she had spent the last decade pretending to do. She didn't tell them how she called out to him, and how he didn't call back, and how she sat in the dark, knowing that he never would. And knowing that she would never be able to feel the comfort that the people who paid to see the sisters felt when they heard that their loved ones were at peace, or that they had been forgiven, or that they were always the one, of course they were, or that they would never be forgotten. Kate and Margaret Fox weren't forgotten, but at the times of their deaths, they weren't remembered fondly. Each died poor, neither living to see 50. The people who still clung to spiritualism weren't glad to see them go. And the people who never believed, they were too. Now there's a postscript here that really can't be resisted. And you can do with it what you will. In 1904, they tore down that little house in that nothing town. And inside one of the walls, near what had been the girls' room, they found the skeleton of a man believed to be a traveling salesman who appeared to have been murdered a few years before the Fox family moved in.
1: That was the Sisters Fox from uh, our newest Maximum... That was from our newest MaximumFun.org podcast, The Memory Palace. They've got a whole archive up in iTunes, and they'll be producing a new show for us every month at MaximumFun.org. They're short, they're sweet, they're beautiful. Uh, Do subscribe. You can find it in iTunes or on our website.